All right. Good morning, everyone. We're on our final uh, week of Philippians, so let's look at our quiz. Euodia and Syndike were probably part of those whom Paul considers enemies of the cross of Christ. False. No, these are, were not enemies of the cross of Christ. These were just ladies who had helped Paul quite a bit, probably, and the early ministry of the church were now having some difficulty. <laughs> Christians are citizens of two kingdoms. I didn't actually speak like that, but I'm thinking of Mark Snowberger here. You know, he likes this two kingdom one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what do you think? Well, and this, some people say theologically, they say it's a theological concept where, you know, we're citizens of earth, are they? The earthly kingdom on earth. We're strangers on earth. That's true. We're citizens. But we still have citizens. We have we have duties here as citizens. So we have our duties here, and we have duties, you know, heavenly duties. So that's what the two kingdom. It's not something that has been used in our circles, but much. But our friend, uh, one of our friends, theologian Mark Snowberg, he likes to kind of revive that two kingdoms. Between two kingdoms. Yeah. Yeah. So the point is that we have duties here. We're citizens. Romans 13, we have to obey the government and all that. But we also have an allegiance, you know, we're citizens of heaven, too. The enemies of the cross were probably the Judaizers. True. True. I mean, he gives a description. He doesn't exactly say it, but that's who it appears to be. The true companion was probably Timothy. No. Remember, the true companion was somebody at Philippi when Paul was writing. And Timothy, you remember, was with Paul in Rome. So when Paul is writing and the letter is being sent through Epaphroditus, Timothy's going to remain with Paul. So he's probably not. Probably not. People have other ideas who that might be. I suggested possibly Luke, maybe, but we don't know. The peace of God is different from peace with God. True, true. What's peace with God? Romans chapter 5. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So peace with God speaks about our salvation. We're no longer enemies. God is not our enemies. When we were unsaved, Romans 5 talks about when we were enemies, but we're no longer enemies. We've been reconciled to God, so we have peace with God. That's a judicial, legal kind of thing. We're not at, we're not at war or anything. We're, we're reconciled. But the peace of God is a sense of completeness or wholeness or satisfaction uh, that we have that comes through uh, the means of grace and so forth, obedience. So we're looking at chapter 4, 2 through 23, and we're looking at final concerns. We've kind of interrupted in the middle of this where we're starting today. But these were final concerns for the Apostle Paul. The first section, verses 2 through 9, were our exhortations. Paul often at the end of his epistle has a series of exhortations. And the first one we noticed uh, last week in verses 2 and 3 was another emphasis on unity. He said that's been a problem 
a little bit of a problem. And we mentioned the case of Udia, Udia and Syndicate. And then he talks about in verses 4 through 7 the ability to rejoice in spite of difficulty, of suffering, and, uh, the, and the ability not to always worry and fret because we should be trusting in God and so forth. And if we do that, if we trust in God, depend upon him, we can have this peace of God that transcends all understanding. We're ready to look at obedience and, uh, and uh, peace, verses four, uh, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. He says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. I say here with the finally... Paul concludes the exhortation section of the letter in verses 2 through 9. In 10 through 20, he will again acknowledge the Philippians' material support, but verses 8 through 9 conclude Paul's concern about the Philippians' concerns. The verb think most commonly is used by Paul in the sense of reckon, that is, take into account. When Paul says, think about these things, he means to take them into account rather than simply think about. So Paul is not so much telling the Philippians to think about these virtues, that is, think high thoughts, but to take into account, to give careful thought to them. This list of eight virtues is somewhat unique in Paul in that many of the terms only occur here in this one letter, and especially uh, in this list. Things like lovely, admirable, excellent. But they are common in moral literature in Paul's day. So societies like Greco-Roman society, Greek society, Roman society, uh, you had uh, moral literature. I mentioned William Bennett's The Book of Virtues here because if you remember that book or not, it was still in print. It was quite a famous book uh, 20 years ago, but... Bennett was the Secretary of Education, member under Reagan, and uh, then he was a drug czar. But after he got out, he, he wrote this book of virtues. And it's a book about things like this. Uh, it, various, various disciplines or virtues, uh, honesty, integrity, self-discipline, these kinds of common virtues, uh, when I went to school, I was, you know, I think, I don't know what children are taught today, but this was really emphasized when I went to school. You know, we had the Ten Commandments on the wall, actually. Mm-hmm. And they emphasized these virtues about honesty and, you know, and all these were just held up as the highest kinds of things. And they were in the ancient world, too. Um, Bennett's book is a book that's that tries to... Uh, give examples in ancient literature and other places, modern literature, of virtuous things, of honesty, integrity, self-discipline, kindness, and things like that. And uh, a lot of, I think, homeschool people have used that book and so forth in the past. So I want to try to emphasize the importance of those things. I say they are pretty much self-explanatory. Maybe the word noble means worthy of respect. I say, because of God's common grace, people have been able to do much good in the areas of education, the development of civilization, scientific and technological progress, 
the development of beauty and skill in the arts, etc. The Philippians would be familiar with things that fall in these categories. So, though we live in a fallen world, <coughs> depraved people, God doesn't let our depravity overwhelm us. At least he hasn't yet. So he allows us, because we're in the image of God, to do a relatively good things. People create uh, beautiful works of art and music and so forth. Uh, education. We make technological progress and all these things. Why doesn't our society just disintegrate into nothing, into anarchy? God, is, in his grace, is holding back the forces of depravity. And so we can be thankful for that. So we can appreciate these kinds of things that Paul talks about, even in our depraved society, because they reflect the character of God. The problem with Bennett's book on the Book of Virtues, he was writing it, in a secular world, and he didn't have—he doesn't have any Bible verses or anything like that. Ultimately, these virtues come from God. They reflect the character of God. Things that are noble, things that are admirable, things that are pure, things that are excellent. They really reflect the character of God. And so ultimately, what we should be thinking about, we think on these things, but we determine them ultimately by God. That is, for us, that's the revelation of God in Scripture. But it means we can appreciate the very best in things like art. We can appreciate good music. There is good music and there's bad music. Now, I know there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's sometimes problems in identifying, but there is something called good music and there is something called bad music. And I can tell you, but you're, you just ask me. No. <laughs> uh, verse 9, whatever you have learned and received or heard from me, are seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul finishes his exhortation with a note on imitation, something he had previously urged in 3.17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Paul's concern throughout this letter has been primarily the content of the gospel, that is, uh, excuse me, has not been the content of the gospel, that is, doctrinal error. That's not the major problem at Philippi. We know we have some false teachers who are trying to influence the Philippians, but there's no indication they bought into that false teaching. So it's not a it's not a, an epistle that's really trying to correct a lot of false error, like Corinthians, where people are buying into the idea of no bodily resurrection. That's a serious error that Paul is correcting there. Um, so the problem here is rather how the gospel is being lived out in the world. So it's really mainly with Christian living. How do we apply and put this gospel into practice? As the Philippians take into account the previous list of virtues, they need to do so in light of what they have learned or received or heard or seen in Paul. And above, else, above all else, they are to practice the things they have learned and received and heard and seen. So right thinking should re lead to right living. And as we heard this morning, wrong thinking leads to wrong living, wrong actions. With the word and and the God, Paul indicates that the result of heeding his exhortation, the God of peace will be with you. This designation, the God of peace, is derived from the Old Testament and is found frequently in Paul. In every case, the context indicates the presence of strife or unrest. 
Though this is apparently not a serious problem at Philippi, still Paul has repeatedly urged them to have the same mindset. And so he closes with the promise that if they follow his teaching and example, if they think on the kinds of things he's talking about, they will have peace, a sense of peace. Well, now he moves on to a word of thanks. Paul now turns to acknowledge the Philippians' recent gift and thus to rejoice over this evidence of friendship. Paul begins with accommodation in verse 10a, but then he does something that I don't know what. <laughs> well, whatever he does, we'll find out. <laughs> I can't remember what I intended to write there. <laughs> I think it's my computer, you know. Just, uh, my, my computer ate my notes. You know? <laughs> Pansy ate my notes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Need and contentment, verses 10 through 14. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Paul begins with accommodation for the Philippians' generous gift. Roman prisoners had to supply their own subsistence beyond just bread and water. So in a Roman prison, people, you weren't sent there for 25 years and, you know, you were... Like in the ancient world, they weren't 20-year sentences or 10. You were put in prison. Most people just died there because they didn't have subsistence. They just, the conditions were so bad. So Paul was depending upon that. Now, he wasn't in an actual physical prison. He was in, under house arrest, more or less, in his own hard house at this point, Acts 28. When Paul received the gift sent by the Philippians through Epaphroditus, he rejoiced greatly, he says, or as one commentator says, he burst into joy. Paul retained a vivid memory of the Philippians' generous act. The phrase, at last, should not be regarded as rebuke, that at last you have renewed your concern for me, but merely as showing that communication had again occurred after a period of no contact. Paul makes it clear here that the fault uh, was not theirs, but came from a lack of opportunity. That's what he's saying. Uh, you didn't have opportunity to help me as you had in the past. Now, we don't know why that was. We can guess. Perhaps there was nobody that Paul could send back at the time to tell them what was happening. Maybe they couldn't send anybody. But we know that Paul was taken prisoner in Jerusalem, sent to Caesarea for a couple years in prison. He was on that shipwreck to Rome. He got, you know, how do you keep up? He couldn't just send an email or cell phone. You know, there's no... No way to get communication. So it's very possible he just didn't know what had happened to the Apostle Paul until they got word now that he is in Rome. But notice what Paul says and does not say. He does not say, I rejoiced in all those gold coins you sent, though that was clearly the case. Instead, Paul rejoiced that the Philippians had renewed their concern for him. So Paul did not rejoice so much as the gift itself, but as he says here, what the gift represented. It represented their concern for the Apostle Paul. So, you know, it seems to be that what gave the Apostle Paul joy here was not things or gifts, but people. 
and how they behaved, how Christians responded to the truth. Displays of truly Christian conduct. That's what gave Paul joy and caused him rejoice. You know, we've heard the expression, and maybe you've used it, you know, somebody gives you something for your birthday, terrible thing, terrible gift. But, you know, the expression, it's not the gift. It's the thought that counts, you know. (laughs) Well, Paul means it. (laughs) He means it. It's not the gift. It's the fact that you're concerned for me. That's what Paul really rejoiced about. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. The words I'm not saying this are designed to qualify what previously Paul previously said so that the readers will not draw the wrong inference. The wrong inference in this instance would be that Paul's joy is primarily due to the fact that he had that they had given him a gift and he felt discontented over his needy condition. Though he undoubtedly had a need, it was not the relief of this need that primarily concerned him. His joy was over the Philippians' friendship, and their friendship was not based on what he could get from them. Paul will go on here to make clear the true nature of Christian contentment, as we see. And as he'll say, true Christian contentment is not based primarily on having our needs met. Paul's explanation, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances, expresses what was regarded by many philosophers in the Greco-Roman world as the highest virtue, contentment. So the Stoics, as was the Stoics, that was their highest virtue, contentment. But as we will see, Paul's contentment was not that of the Greco-Roman philosopher, which had been described as, quote, the cultivated attitude of the wise person, who had become independent of all things and all people relying on himself because of his innate resources or on the lot given to him by the gods. The truly contented person would live above need and abundance in such a way as to be self-sufficient. So this is a, a philosophy that has come down to us, Ralph, Ralph Waldo Emerson, if you ever read any, had to read any of his stuff in English literature. He expresses these, these same kind of stoic ideas about self-sufficiency, accepting your lot. As I say, this was the view of the Stoics. But Paul's contentment did not come from self-sufficiency, but we could say from being in Christ, from Christ's sufficiency. Paul... Uh, Paul found his ultimate contentment because he trusted Christ. He was a Christian. He was a believer. And Paul will speak about this in uh, verse 13 in just a moment here, this sufficiency in Christ, this Christ sufficiency. But before he gets to that, he now turns in verse 12 here to elaborate uh, on what it means in terms of material needs. What, What is he thinking about? as far as contentment in material needs. Uh, we have to learn contentment, Paul says, and Paul will explain now this learning process, verse 12. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul now explains the process through which he learned contentment. 
Though he may have sounded like a Stoic in verse 11 with his emphasis on contentment, he now says that he knows what it is to be in need. Now, that's something no Stoic would ever say. Stoic is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. He would never say that. He would just accept whatever lot his... But Paul says, I know what it is to be in need. I've seen that. I've lived that. By the words to be in need, we should probably think of Paul's the, Paul's various hardship list. Remember in 1 Corinthians 4.11, he says, At this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. 2 Corinthians 6.4, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, and riots, hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. 2 Corinthians 11.23, Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews... The 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones, and three times I was shipwrecked. Spent a day and a night, a night and a day in the open sea, constantly on the move, danger from rivers, from bandits, fellow Jews, dangers from Gentiles, the city, the country, at sea, danger from false believers. I have toiled and gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and gone without food. I've been cold and naked. It goes on. So Paul also understood what it was to have plenty. He says, I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to be in need. We can, you know, if we read much about the Apostle Paul, we get that. But then he says, I know what it is to have plenty. This may refer to his earlier days as a rising figure in Judaism. Remember in Galatians 1.14, Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, and it was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. So, you know, one time he was a prominent Pharisee. So he had a, probably a, a pretty good life then, apparently. Some people think it's just relative. That is, it may be that Paul considered the times he was not suffering privation to be times of plenty. Most, I wouldn't, most of us wouldn't think that way, but, but it may be that Paul just thought, you know, when we look at that list we just read of all the hardships, it may be that when things were just sort of normal, most people in the ancient world didn't have the standard of living we have. We understand that. And so it may have been just... just when he wasn't suffering, he thought that was plenty. I've just mentioned some cases where even when Paul was saved on the road, he spent several days with disciples in Damascus. So he was treated well there. Acts 9, Paul brought him and took him to the apostles in Jerusalem. He moved about, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. So he was, you know, he had accommodations. Remember Acts 16? At Philippi, he goes down the river and Lydia is saved. She's a wealthy woman. And she invites Paul, you know, and his companions into her house. And she compelled us and we, she persuaded us and we went um, with her. So Paul had times when he wasn't uh, facing these kinds of hardships and so forth. 
And so Paul had learned to accept whatever came his way because he believed that his life was not conditioned by either extreme, you know, by the hardships or by the good times. And his relationship to Christ meant that these are basically irrelevant as far as my spiritual life is concerned. That's hard, you know, because we think our spiritual life is great when the bank account looks good. You know, that's just the way it kind of works. How much do we need? 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Ooh. Let's don't read that too much. <laughs> so you can see when Paul was saying plenty, it didn't have to be riches, did it? He said food and clothing. We're content with that. Verse 13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul now affirms his self-sufficiency. I can do all this. Paul does not mean that he could do anything, that nothing was beyond his power. All this refers to those situations, both good and bad, just described. All prosperous and adverse circumstances which one encounters in everyday living. I can handle all those ups and downs. The good times, the bad times. Because Christ gives me strength. Paul adds an important qualifying phrase. Through him who gives me strength. The secret of Paul's independence was not the self-sufficiency of the Stoic philosopher, but his dependence upon another and independence from the world through dependence upon Christ. So here's the secret of Paul's contentment. He had learned through the ups and downs of his life that his self-sufficiency came about through his union with Christ because he was a Christian because he knew Christ. He was born again. And so that Christ was always empowering him to live this kind of life. To live sufficiently, contentedly. So it's not really self-sufficiency. It's more like Christ-sufficiency, some have said. So we could say that these words, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, sort of spell out on a practical level what we thought maybe was Paul's life verse or Paul's motto back in 121, for to me to live is Christ. For to me to live is Christ. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now this verse has been greatly misused to suggest you know, that Christians can do anything, sometimes extraordinary things, when I was saved, I think I mentioned before, it was very popular to have a life verse. You know, you got to have a life. This was mine. Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Remember the King James? I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth But see, I thought it meant, you know, I thought it meant I can do whatever God wants me to do. Whatever God wants me to do in life, I can do it. Well, that's true, but that's not what this verse is really saying. This verse is talking about contentment through the ups and downs of life. All these things, Paul says, I can do all these, this, this I've just referred to. 
That is the good times, the times of plenty, the times of hardship, the times of suffering, and the times when things are good. I can handle either one. You might you might think that's strange because you think, well, we need Christ's help during the difficult times, you know? We need his strength then. We all, we all agree on that. But actually, we need his strength during the good times because that's when things can get really wacky. You know, times of plenty can be times when we turn away and we don't reflect upon Christ and God and so forth. So contentment comes through this spiritual strength that comes through the means of grace. I keep emphasizing the means of grace. How do we get this contentment? It comes through the sufficiency that Christ gives us through the means of grace. And the means of grace are the Bible, prayer, fellowship of God's people. So as we learn more about God through the Scripture, as we're exhorted, as we're reminded, as we're encouraged, we read these verses, having food and clothing be content. That's that's helpful to be reminded of that, doesn't it? It helps us with our contentment. We pray, we trust God. We're encouraged by others. Verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Paul begins this section in verse 10 with a commendation of the Philippians for their generous gift. But he's made a number of qualifications in the following verses. He does not want to leave the impression that he he is not truly thankful for what the Philippians have done. So once again, Paul expresses his sincere appreciation to them for their kindness. So thus he makes it clear that in the preceding words, he did not suggest that he was ungrateful. Since their gift met his material needs while he was in prison, it was also evidence of them being partners. Yet it was good of you to share, that's that word koinonia, to be a partner with me in my troubles. Even though Paul's life is not determined by need, since Paul had learned contentment, whether he was full or hungry. Nevertheless, the Philippians did a good thing by helping him in his time of need. They had accepted Paul's affliction as their own affliction. And that's a wonderful thing. Well, then Paul gives here a uh, theology of Christian giving, 4.15 through 20. Moreover, as you Philippians know, In the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. After noting the Philippians' willingness to share with him in verse 14, now in verse 15, Paul leaves no doubt regarding his appreciation for their gift. He recalls the Philippians' substantial and exemplary history in this matter of financial support. The Philippians' support for the apostle goes back to the early days of their acquaintance with the gospel. This fits well with the reference in 1, 3, and 5. I thank God because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This support actually began when Paul set out from Macedonia. This would be after he left Berea in Acts 17, 10 through 15, probably when he was in Corinth. You remember, Paul, in Acts chapter 16, got the Macedonian call, and he came over to Philippi. And once he had ministered in Philippi in Acts 16, he went on to Thessalonica, Acts chapter 17, verse 1. He had a 
short ministry there, probably a few months. He goes on to Berea, remember that? It's kind of probably a short ministry there. He has to leave both places because the Judaizers are on him, you know, and they throw up trouble. So he has to leave Thessalonica, he has to leave Berea. And then uh, the Jews, I should say, are on him. And then he, uh, the believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, which apparently looks like he took uh, some sort of ship down to Athens, Acts 17. You remember the encounter on uh, the Areopagus there, Mars Hill, the, with the philosophers and so forth. And then he goes on to Corinth and Acts 18. So when he left Philippi, they didn't forget about him. They sent gifts and were concerned about the Apostle Paul. Remember, we think Luke, Luke stayed behind. We're pretty clear Luke stayed behind there, which was probably a helpful thing for Paul. Uh, Acts records that when Paul arrived in Corinth in Acts 18, he supported himself as a tent maker along with his friends Aquila and Priscilla. However, in Acts 18.5, we're told that when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, which is probably Philippi, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, probably because he received a gift from the Philippians. That he received support from Macedonia while in Corinth is clear from 2 Corinthians 11, 8 through 9. I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I need. In fact, Paul says that the Philippian church was the only one who shared with him in the matter of of giving and receiving. It's difficult to know by Paul's language, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. If he's criticizing other churches or simply reminding the Philippians of the unique relationship he had with them. Maybe it's the latter because we know the Corinthians wanted to support the Apostle Paul. In fact, he has a long discussion of that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And he says there he won't do it. He won't take any money from the church at Corinth while he's at Corinth. And the reason he gives there is because he says, uh, I'm not taking any money from you because if I do, you may think that I'm charging for the gospel. So it's, apparently it's Paul's policy, apparently not normally to take money from a church that he is ministering to. Now, once he leaves, like Philippi supported him, then that's a different question. But while he's there, he's not uh, passing the offering plate, you know, while he's there, because he doesn't want people to think, you know, we're charging. for this. It's like the same thing we do in our church where we ask people who are visitors, please don't think you have to contribute. You know, we don't want them to think, you know, to be here, you have to contribute or something like that. Probably the same kind of policy there. Verse 16. For when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. As a further reminder of the uniqueness of the Philippians' friendship, Paul adds a final explanatory clause. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than, more than once when I was in need. Not only had the Philippians sent him a gift when Paul departed from Philippi, but when he was in Thessalonica, they had made a contribution to him on more than one occasion. 
Now, presumably, these gifts in Thessalonica uh, by the Philippians were smaller gifts, apparently, a different category than verse 15, uh, which seems to be a larger gift brought by Epaphroditus. So, apparently, what happens is Paul supports himself when he's preaching to a certain group by his own work. He doesn't doesn't take money, as I said, generally from the church he is speaking to. Remember, he tells the Thessalonians later, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You yourselves know, 2 Thessalonians, how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so we would not be a burden to any of you. So apparently, that's Paul's policy. Verse 17. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. With the words, not that, Paul interrupts his expression of gratitude with yet another qualifier against possible misunderstanding. Paul's short review of their noteworthy history of friendship with him in the matter of giving and receiving should not be understood as a disguised request for more help. What he really seeks is what may be credited to their account. Here Paul is using commercial, financial illustration. The Philippians will accrue interest to their divine account as a result of their fruitfulness, their spiritual growth in the matter of giving. Some people have a utilitarian view of friendship. That is, what I can get out of it, Aristotle said. Most people think of friends as being those who are useful to us. But Paul makes it clear that he is not in this relationship for what he can get out of the Philippians. He's not in it for himself. The Philippians' gift to him indicates a growing relationship with Christ. It shows their spiritual life. It's an indicator of the spiritual health of the Philippians. Paul sees it. Our giving says something. It says something about our spiritual health, doesn't it? There's just no way around that. 418, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus. Uh, now that I see from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. The financial language continues as Paul says, I have received full payment and have more than enough. In Paul's day, the language receive full payment, that is that Greek expression, was written on a bill to, to mean paid in full. The gifts brought by Epaphroditus had completely met his needs, more than enough. I am amply supplied. And Paul considers this contribution a sacrificial offering to God made to further the Lord's work by helping his servant. The phrase, a fragrant offering, is used in Ephesians 5.2 of Christ's sacrificial offering of himself to God on man's behalf. Paul says, Christ loved us and gave himself for us as. It's like a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It reflects the Levitical ritual, the imagery of the burnt offering in the Old Testament, which was understood as a fragrant offering to God. 
These offerings, Paul says, these things that we give to God, this financial gift in this sense, pleased God because it came from obedient hearts. I mean, we think of Romans 12, 1, don't we? Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Verse 19, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Since Paul is in prison and cannot reciprocate the Philippians' act of friendship, he reminds them that his God will do what he himself is not able to do, to reimburse them for their gifts to Paul. But more than that, God will meet all their needs. Perhaps the Philippians had been so generous in their giving, perhaps, that they now found themselves in real need. What Paul says here agrees with other passages that state that those who share generously with others, especially to advance the work of the Lord, are promised a divine supply of anything they may lack because of their generosity. So you see sort of that principle. Now remember, Proverbs is a proverb. It's not a promise. You know, it's not the health and wealth. It's not the, if I put $10 in the offering plate, I'll have 100 you know, given to me. You know, so it's not that kind. These, these are Proverbs. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. The general principle is true, generally. Not always. Every time there's always... Whatever is, whoever's kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8. through 8. More specifically, Paul tells the Corinthians, Remember this. Whoever sows, he's talking about giving here, giving financially. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly. So that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. Now, it's important to remember that this promise relates to needs, not wants. And remember that hard saying we just read in 1 Timothy 6 eight. but if we have food and clothing, let us, we'll be content with that, you know. Verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul closes this beautiful passage with a doxology, a praise to God. God's providential care for his children should always be recognized by us. And when we reflect on God's goodness to us, it should result in praise and worship. Even the eternal ages yet to come forever and ever will not be sufficient to exhaust the praises that belong to him. Well, we come to the closing here for 21 through 23. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. It's possible that the remaining words of this letter were written by Paul's own hand, 
which have would have followed the pattern set forth in Second Thessalonians three seventeen. There, Paul says, "I write this greeting at the end of Second Thessalonians in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write." He says the same thing at the end of Galatians, the end of Colossians. Paul sends greetings to every believer at Philippi to be delivered to them probably by the leadership of the church to whom the letter was probably initially given. Paul associates the brothers and Paul's associates, that is, the brothers and sisters who are with me, also send their greetings. Now these are different. The brothers and sisters who are with me are different slightly than what we read in verse 22 where it says all God's people send your greetings. So the brothers and sisters include some close associates, probably Timothy, possibly some of those who were mentioned back in 114 who um, who were proclaiming the gospel without fear, you know, even though Paul was in prison. So he's talking about some sort of closer group here. Verse 22, but he says all God's people here in the Roman church send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. All God's people refers to the broader circle of believers in Rome. Paul also extends special greetings from those who belong to Caesar's household. This expression denotes those engaged in the imperial service, whether as slaves or freedmen in Rome or elsewhere. So here in Rome, this would be people engaged in the imperial service. That could be a lot of people. It would include that praetorian guard we talked about in 113. Remember Paul talks about the palace guard. You might think, he says, or you might think that my imprisonment has been a disaster, but because of that, people that are hearing the gospel, even the Praetorian Guard are hearing the gospel. And obviously, he's having influence in the, in the uh, household of Caesar among the servants, the freedmen, the slaves there are hearing the gospel too. Verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, amen. Say this concluding benediction is exactly the same as Philemon 25 and similar to a Galatians 6.18. That concludes Philippians. So uh, next week, I'm going to start a little short series, five weeks, on the life of Paul. Just a survey there. Because Pastor Ken is still doing mas- uh, master plan. No, yeah. he's doing how to get the most out of your Bible. Sorry. And he won't, he'll have, he's got five more weeks after today. So he'll finish that. And then he starts a new series, I think September the 29th, the last Sunday in September. And then we'll all be back. All of us will be back at the end of September for this new series that he's starting in the Discovering God Hour. But next week we will continue on if you want to. Uh, be in a class with the life kind of survey of the life of Paul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together today. God, give us grace and help us to learn some of the lessons that we've talked about today, especially that lesson of contentment. It's a struggle for us, we admit. And so we pray that uh, through the word and prayer and the help of other believers in our church that we'll see their example We'll hear the truth, we'll reflect upon it, and our lives will be able to be more content. We'll be able to trust you. We won't fret. We won't worry as much as we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.